Welcome to Question Time with Al Elliott. Al, <laughs> thank you for joining us. When you started your business, what did you think would be the hard bit? Uh, that's an easy one. It's getting and keeping clients. That's what I thought. Yeah, to be fair, when we started Oblong, I thought the same. But it turns out the biggest challenge we have is keeping track of all the different tools that we use or we did use. Help desk software, payment software, email marketing tools, blogging tools, SEO tools, deal management tracking, pipeline tracking. And what I've learned recently is that you really don't need more tools to get more out of your business. You just need HubSpot. It's an all-in-one platform that does 90% of what you need in one place. One of the coolest things about HubSpot is that AI is baked in. So whether you need customer service, chatbots, knowledge bases, or even campaign creation tools, AI is just waiting to help you out. So dump the disconnected tools and the chaos that comes with them. Discover what HubSpot's all-in-one platform can do to streamline your business. Visit HubSpot.com to grow better today. Which was this you know, top five company globally and was just completely ruined um, mostly by his personality, right? Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast where we simplify the science of people. My name is Al and I'm a business owner. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. And welcome back. We like to think that we put the fun in the fundamentals of people. <laughs> Did you or like the that? sigh in the science of people. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. You like that? That was just off the cuff. I know. I'm on fire today. You are, you are. So today we're talking about the business of family from dinner table dreams to boardroom deals. Great title, by Great the way. Great title. And so we've got two fantastic guests joining us. Leah, who's the first one? So our first guest today is Ryan Sherman. Ryan is Chief Science Officer at Hogan Assessment Systems. Now you'll remember Hogan, we've talked about Hogan before. Uh, Dr. Sherman, I should say, um, is an expert on personality assessment, leadership and organisational effectiveness. He is also co-host of the Science of Personality podcast, which exposes listeners to the latest research on these topics. His research on personality and its interaction with everyday situations was also awarded federal support from the National Science Foundation. Fancy. That, I know. If that wasn't enough, he's also received numerous awards for his research, including being named Rising Star in 2016 by the Association for Psychological Science and a Sage Young Scholars Award in 2018. When are you going to win an award? <laughs> Not anytime soon. <laughs> Should we go and meet Ryan? Um, so I am Hogan's... Chief Science Officer, uh, which means I run our data science division at Hogan. The data science division uh, really consists of maybe three different parts. One part where we do custom research for clients, helping clients find personality-based solutions that fit their specific needs. And our second guest is Stephen Shaw. So Stephen is a strategy facilitator. He's a team development coach, leadership coach, and more importantly for this podcast, a personality profiler. Now, he spent his entire life, and probably most of his childhood, actually, in family businesses, and he started a few of his own. He's bought family businesses from his parents. That's easy for me to say. He's bought family businesses from his parents. He's grown them internationally. He's sold them. Um, he's learned a lot about successful succession planning and also made a few mistakes along the way. So he facilitates workshops, delivers keynotes, and teaches on leadership academies in Europe, North America, the Middle East, Asia. I don't think there's a continent that Stephen isn't a king on. Now, what's interesting is that Stephen's parents still work with him or for him. I don't really know how it all works. Should we go and meet Stephen? Uh, I'm Stephen Short. I've, I'm from Dublin in Ireland. I've grown up in two family businesses. Uh, I bought both of them 
uh, sold one of them, which was reliant 100% on international travel. So sold that just before COVID, so December 2019. Um, so as my wife says, we'll never play the lottery because that was the day we won it. I have a personal interest in family businesses and the different nuances and the different problems and baggage that can go along with that and helping other people through it because I very nearly walked away from the whole thing um, until I found the, the different tools and mindsets and things that I needed to do to actually have a successful succession and now uh, couldn't be happier with what I'm doing and still working uh, and actually living uh, with my folks. Two fantastic experts with us today to unpick everything about family businesses and how to navigate them right through to running them successfully and selling them successfully. But before we get on to that, Al, we did our first uh, news roundup last week. Segment. Didn't get any complaints, so I think can we do it again? (laughs) I got one bit of feedback saying that they laughed because the music was so inappropriate. <laughs> so I'm working on that because I was like, oh yeah, that seems all right. But uh, so there might be some more music this week and uh, hopefully it's a bit more appropriate. We would welcome your letters. We would for <laughs> carrier pigeons. <laughs> okay, so what are these trends that we're talking about this week? What have you spotted, Leanne? We've got a new word. Go we on. need like some kind of klaxon, like new word alert, new word alert. You've just told Editing Al he's going to have to go and find a klaxon. <laughs> So we have a new word, the great regret. Any guesses? Uh, is it when you are in year 10 of your marriage and it's Valentine's Day like it is now? No, I'm only joking. Ah, I'm only joking. I think your biggest regret on that one is you didn't get me anything. That is a huge regret. <laughs> I, won't, I won't lie. No, so what's the biggest, what's the, what's the great regret? So the great regret. Um, so we had the great resignation of 2021, mm-hmm. uh, which saw lots of people decide to, to leave their jobs. What's now being dubbed the great regret is that these people um, apparently regret making that decision. Um, in fact, there was, there was a survey carried out by um, some HR experts at paychecks uh, and they found that 80% of people who quit their roles in search of greener greener pastures regretted the move. I kind of, that kind of makes sense that there was the great resignation. Everyone was doing it. Um, uh, you know, it's like shell suits in the 80s. Everyone was doing it. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if Australians and, uh, and Canadians and, and Americans will know what a shell suit is. Um, I don't know. Very, very... Maybe I'm going to offend people saying very Liverpool and Manchester-centric, but uh, it seemed like uh, that the North owned the Chelsea. <laughs> it was a Northern style. But basically, yeah, a lot of people were doing it. Everyone was doing it. And so I thought, well, yeah, why not? Why not? And so I blame, do you know who I blame? TikTok. Because they're all like, yeah, you should resign. And then everyone's like, what do I do now? And they go, I don't know. You resign. In other news, Apple, you know, not the fruit, the uh, company. <laughs> <laughs> you, know the, you know the one? I've, yeah, I'm, I'm surrounded by... Everything Apple sells. <laughs> <laughs> Our office looks like an Apple de- Apple warehouse, I think. Yeah, so Apple has its first ever head of people. Hmm. Yeah, so apparently Carol Surface is stepping into Apple's new chief people officer role um, and is taking on everything to do with people and human resources. Previously, that role was kind of combined with the um, head of the, the retail side of the business, uh, which is a person called Deirdre O'Brien. Where was she from, do you reckon? <laughs> Don't know, but I'd maybe think she has Irish heritage. So yeah, first head of people, which might sound a little bit surprising when you think about Apple having, what, 150,000-ish employees, mm-hmm. maybe more. Um, 
so yeah it, it's it, one it's a big job for somebody to take on retail and people mm-hmm. um, but equally it makes sense to me why those two roles were combined we think about when we talked about on our employer brand episode the overlaps between kind of internal brand and external brand in terms of customer experience and employee experience it makes sense to me um, but equally you know like a lot of organizations now they're realizing that having somebody who is dedicated to people and culture is the best way to go so yeah congratulations carol we look forward to seeing what you get up to and get on the podcast carol come on yeah carol i, I like the idea that uh, that apple's values are i hope they're called apple core values i'd, I'd like that oh. very much oh, I'm, I'm so, so sorry. sorry i'm sorry as well <laughs> what's your third thing And finally, this was a little news article uh, in The Atlantic that caught my attention this week. It was about the work husband and work wife. Hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm sure everyone listening will will know this. You know, you've you've probably had a work wife or a work husband or a work partner. Um, It's been something that we've kind of noted in both the media um, and in in the literature since 2015. Um, And I've got a definition for you of a work spouse. So it's a special platonic friendship with a work colleague characterized by a close emotional bond, high levels of disclosure and support, and mutual trust, honesty, loyalty, and respect. Some people have argued that it's connection somewhere sits between friendship and romance. And I get that. I've had a couple of work husbands in my time. One of them is still very much in my life right now and is one of my best friends. Um, I think it's a really important relationship to have in the workplace. Because I'm slightly upset that the people who created this idea of that, when they defined it, they started off work spouse and they went special platonic. And I'm like, that's the first two letters of spouse. Why couldn't you have just just gone the extra mile and make it S-P-O-U-S-E and go special platonic, other, Open. open, understanding, sexual entity. (laughs) <laughs> it needs some work, it needs some work. We'll work on that for next week. Okay, so back to the structure of the show. So what we're going to talk about is we're going to basically try to aim to... to, to that's, that's, that's not a great confident thing to say. We're going to try to aim to. We're going to be answering these, these seven questions. First of all, what is personality and why is it important? We're going to uh, defer to Ryan for that, for who is the expert in that. How do we assess personality? A bit more from Ryan. How entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial personalities shape family businesses bit from Ryan, bit from Stephen, I think from there. Unique dynamics of family businesses. Then finally, well, penultimately onto leadership in family businesses, talking about children and how all that works. And then talking about children, managing a successful, successful succession. That's not easy to say. I wish I hadn't written that down. Successful succession. It does need a little bit of thought and intention. So let's kick off with personality. I think we all have an idea of what personality is. You know, oh, they've got a bad personality, a good personality. They've got the, the kind of personality that does X, Y, Z. What Ryan said was that Hogan, which is the company he works for, thinks of personality as what others think of you. They, they use this fancy term like reputational inventory or something. He's going to say it, I'm sure, in a minute. And I thought, that's basically your brand, isn't it? Because if we go back to what we said last week or the week before, Jeff Bezos is saying that a brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. So therefore, Hogan's basically looking at your personality, which is what people say about you when you're not in the room. So let's hear from Ryan. If you look at the field of personality psychology, sort of academic, scientific side of personality, or if you uh, go to even Wikipedia and look up the definition of personality, uh, it's kind of a sad state of affairs because it's really clear that there's actually not total agreement about what personality is. So there's sort of eh, little nuances of difference about what's included and what's not included in personality. But in general, when we're talking about personality, we're talking about individual differences in the way that people behave, 
think and feel. Um, now, some people would say, well, also motivations are included in there. And some people would say, well, personality is a driving and causal force of behavior. Uh, at Hogan, we don't really think of personality that way. We really do think of personality in a much more um, sort of reputational sense. So that is, um, what do other people think about you, right? What do other people think about the way that you think, behave, feel? What do they tell us about you? How have you behaved in the past according to people who, who, who know you? And, and for us, that's the real key. Uh, the real key insight from personality is that reputation um, that you've earned behaviorally um, because that's what's best going to predict how you're going to behave in the future. And at Hogan, that's what our assessments are really about. Our assessments are about predicting how other people are going to perceive you, predicting how you're going to perform in the workplace. And so that reputational component is, is really the central part of what we do. So um, from, from my, my, my point of view, uh, personality is really the sort of... Uh, summary of, of how you think, feel, and act uh, across time and across a variety of situations. Typical psychologist not being able to agree on anything. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Um, but yeah, no, a really great definition there from Ryan and one of the reasons that I personally love Hogan assessments and the way their tools work. Now, the obvious follow-up question, now we understand what personality is, why is personality important? Now, Ryan has a podcast, it's called The Science of Personality. But Ryan starts a podcast by saying people are the most consequential and dangerous forces on earth. I asked Ryan to explain this a little bit more. I think if we look around the world and we look at the problems that are sort of facing uh, humanity today, almost all of those problems are caused by humans, right? And that hasn't always been the case, right? So if we looked, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, what are the most um, challenging problems that humans face? A lot of those problems were caused by the environment. A lot of those problems were caused by other animals. A lot of those problems were caused by weather, right? Um, uh, were, were caused by a lack of resources, a lack of food, um, no ability to hunt, no ability to farm, right? There's a lot of problems that, that, that our human ancestors faced for, for a really, really long time. And humans have sort of solved many of those problems, right? I mean, those, I mean, okay, it is the case that there is still poverty in the world. It is the case that there's still uh, people who, who go hungry in the world. But by and large, as a sort of species, uh, humans have done really, really well at solving those sort of old problems. Um, the new problems, the real problems that people face and have been facing for the last you know, several thousand years, um, are problems of other humans, right? What, what are humans doing? Are humans destroying the environment? Uh, are humans destroying each other? Um, and so, I mean, I think if we look at, you know, what, what, you know, what, what's the biggest impact on human life, uh, it, it is actually other humans, right? Other humans doing that kind of destruction. I mean, there's a war uh, in the Ukraine right now, which is, which is between humans. And um, I don't know how many different species have gone extinct because of humans, because humans have hunted them, right? And killed them off, right? So, um, and that, that's what I mean when I say, when we say that humans are the most dangerous and consequential force on earth, that's what we really mean. Like there's, there's really not, we are the thing. We, you know, we, we've, we've found the enemy and it is us, uh, so, so to speak. Um, and so it, from our point of view, uh, if humans are so powerful and humans are so consequential, it makes sense to sort of understand that thing, like what's going on. It kind of puts things into perspective when Ryan says we're the most dangerous things on earth. And this is down to our personality from what I can understand, but we're going to go into more of this in a second. So I can see why personality can't be changed that easily, but how should we try and change it? Is it possible to change it? Like what happens if you have a personality clash 
is this possible to change your actual personality? We asked Ryan. The research shows pretty clearly that the personality is pretty stable. That is, people tend to get the same scores. If you take the assessment again, whether it's Hogan assessment or any other kind of personality assessment, if you take this, if it's a good assessment and you take it again, you should get pretty much the same score, particularly if you take it in a short time period, like, uh, you know, within a day or within a week, even within a month, you, know, you get pretty much the same scores um, the next time. So for the most part, personality is pretty stable. There seems to be some research suggesting that maybe you can, at least to some extent. Now, I think it goes back to that question you asked earlier, which is really what is the definition of personality? If we think about personalities are sort of our biology, uh, right? Because we know that there are biological connections, the, the hormones that we have, genetics are, are related to how we behave and, and think. Um, the answer is probably no, you really can't. Change. I mean, that's not technically true. We actually can change, we can change our biology, right? So um, a couple of clear examples, like one is a, a strong blow to the head, uh, uh, that, that does actual damage to your brain will often change your behavior in the way in the way that you behave, uh, which is not a great example. Or well, it's not a great if it happens to people, but but it, it it is an example of how biology shapes our personality. But other things about our biology can shape how we think and behave too, right? So antidepressants, by some respects, I mean that's really what they're doing. Where they're about changing your hormones so that you behave, feel, think in a in a different way. So there there's sort of, there's sort of biological interventions, but we're talking about like non-biological interventions to change our personality. Um, and there seems to be some evidence that through really hard work, training, coaching, feedback, um, you can change your personality to some small extent. So it's not huge amounts, right? We know the personality is very stable from time point to time point. But through practice and feedback, we can actually change the reputations that we earn with, with our colleagues and peers um, and, and to some extent change our, our personality from, from, that, from that point of view. Um, I guess the way I would put it is it's sort of like um, a golf swing or a tennis stroke. Um, and if you've practiced a certain golf swing or a certain tennis stroke for a long time, it can be difficult to change it. Uh, you, you need a lot more practice of that swing or, and you need really direct feedback from a coach who says, no, 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 do this, do this instead, right? The problem is with personality is imagine you've been practicing that golf stroke or that tennis stroke your entire life. Right? So that's what makes it so difficult to change is that it really takes a lot of concentrated effort, but, but it can be done. So I think what Ryan is explaining there is that, yes, the research shows us that personality is fairly stable over time and over our lifetime. And changing our personality can be really difficult. But in terms of changing our behaviors through coaching or feedback, that might be more achievable. And what we're talking about there is self-awareness. Self-awareness is the first step to making any necessary changes. So self-awareness, if we're not careful, does sound a bit like one of these terms that goes, oh, everyone should be self-aware, sit on a mountain, cross-legged. But the fact is that I think you've told me before, there's actually kind of a, a monetary value you can put towards self-awareness. Yeah, so I mean, self-awareness is, is often cited as a, a really powerful capability for any leader to have. And there was actually a, um, an article that was published in the MIT Sloan Management Review, basically some, to summarize so that successful leaders know where their natural inclinations lie or know their personality. And they use this knowledge to either boost those inclinations or those preferred behaviors or compensate for them, mitigate those less productive behaviors. An interesting study also found that self-awareness impacts a company's bottom line, which sounds almost unbelievable, but 
Corn Ferry International found that companies with strong financial performance tend to have employees with higher levels of self-awareness than poorly performing companies. So it seems to me that, you know, understanding yourself is really important. And it's just one of the reasons why assessing personality can be a really powerful tool for leadership development. And taking that one step further, assessing personality is also a great way of getting the insights we need to make a variety of decisions within our business, as Ryan explains. Personality, uh, I think, is really important for the workplace for several reasons. So um, really, actually, it was Bob Hogan the, the one and Joyce, uh, who, who were the people who really kicked personality in the workplace off as a thing that 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 was going on. And this was for a couple of reasons. One was that employers have really critical decisions to make. It doesn't matter um, what employer you are. You have to ultimately make decisions about, you know, you can't hire everyone. Um, you have to, so you have to decide, you know, who to hire. You have to decide in some cases who, who to let go, who to lay off. You have to decide who to promote. You have to decide who's high potential. You have to decide who's a safety risk. All of these are critical questions that employers have to answer. And the data are actually really clear that companies that are better at answering these questions, organizations that are better at answering these questions are just far more successful. And so if you want your organization to be successful, you have to do a really good job of answering these sort of key personnel questions. And so then the next question is, how do you do that? How do you get good at answering personnel questions? And there's a few possible options, right? You could flip a coin and say, oh, I'll just decide who to hire at random. You could give people a lie detector test. Um, you could... Uh, interview people. That's a very common technique for deciding, you know, who, who to hire or who not to. What personality assessments offer is a way to make decisions about people that is scientifically based, right? So there's lots of research showing that personality predicts pretty much everything, the, the, every meaningful difference in, in sort of life outcomes that we care about. It predicts uh, criminal behavior. It predicts substance use. It predicts substance abuse. It predicts uh, marriage, it predicts uh, marriage longevity, it predicts actual longevity, how long we live. Uh, it predicts workplace performance really quite well. So, uh, so, so that's one way to decide as well is to use a personality assessment because we know that this actually predicts workplace performance. So, I mean, as business owners, we have to make decisions. I mean, that's fact. And the most difficult decisions tend to be around people. Who do you trust? Who do you hire? Who do you fire? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, as Ryan says, we can go, we can use the CIA technique with lie detectors and all that kind of thing. But the fact is that Hogan seems to be able to do this without too much sort of intrusive examination. So if personality accurately predicts the future behavior, then it stands to reason that we measure that personality using an inventory like Hogan or Hogan is going to measure how someone might act in a certain situation. What's interesting about this is that Ryan wrote an article back in 2015 about Donald Trump. This is way before he got elected in 2017. And I think he accurately predicted what it'd be like to be as, what Donald would be like or Trump would be like as a president. I'll link to this in the show notes. He basically said he was low on diligence, low on prudence, and high on bold and ambition, which essentially just predicted, however you feel about Trump, I don't think you can dispute that that was, that sort of personified his entire um, administration, his entire four years. But this was also really interesting. He suggested, this is what Ryan suggested, was that, and I'm going to read this, the personality of Mr. Trump also highlights the characteristics of those who will likely support and vote for him. In other words, we like people who are like us. So if this is the case, then that kind of almost did a sort of snapshot of the prevailing personality of the American culture in 2015. I thought it was really interesting. Here's what Ryan said. 
nobody's quite as public as Donald Trump, right? I think I think I just read today that uh, Instagram or Facebook or both are letting him back on, and he's actually or at the time that he was kicked off was the most followed person on Facebook, right? So I mean, we sort of know a lot about Donald Trump. So I, from my perspective, it was relatively easy to write an article about his personality, to frame his his stuff, his personality in those terms, um, but. Uh, looking back on it, like, yeah, I think it did pretty well play out just like we would expect, right? I mean, you know, the the, the positives uh, and the, the negatives. And it's actually really funny uh, looking back at that the, the article and, and the comments and uh, on, on, on that um, is that I got compliments and complaints on that article from both liberals and conservatives, right? So, Liberals said I was too nice and they complained. They said, you were too nice to him. He's awful, horrible, terrible person. And conservatives said I was too mean to him. I cut him down too much. And so, um, so I kind of feel like, you know, I probably hit the nail on the head. If, if neither, if everybody agrees that I'm wrong for opposite reasons, then maybe it's not so bad. And I think what, what Ryan's really demonstrated very well there is that using a psychometric can give an objective opinion. It's not whether you like them or not, you agree with your politics or not. You're given an objective opinion. I think he's clearly done that, as he said, by having equal compliments and equal complaints. So what's interesting is that we're talking to Ryan, who's obviously got lots of practical application, but also scientists. Then we're talking about someone, Stephen, who actually uses it in the real world as well. And so what's funny is that Stephen forgot to kind of use the, this inventory uh, for his own family business when he took over. One of the things that we've discovered through this, now we work with psychometrics. Our business is, is psychometrics, personality profiling, but the cobbler's kids have no shoes. We were completely almost ignoring our different personalities in the business and, and butting heads and how similar we were in some things and how different we were in some things. So we've made a case for psychometrics being useful. But of course, if you're a regular listener, you will know that not all psychometrics are made equal. Here's Ryan to explain. The thing about personality assessments is there's no there's no regulating body uh, other than the courts, which, you know, sort of uh, are around personnel and hiring decisions. Other than that, there's no real body to regulate, which means that anybody can create a personality assessment. Anybody can create one today, tomorrow, and just start selling it. Um, and one of the big misconceptions is that many people think that um, that they're all equally valid. They all work equally well. But unless you actually have the data to prove that your assessment works, that your assessment is fair, that your assessment is unbiased, uh, it, it's, uh, I think... Uh, it's just too easy to fall into a trap of, of well, you know, that, that all personality assessments are equally valid. You really need those that are scientifically backed, that have uh, evidence for their validity, or that is their accuracy, um, and that have evidence for their, for their psychometric properties. Um, that they should be able to offer you a technical manual. You should be able to evaluate um, just the quality of that assessment from, from those materials. And if you can't do that, then the, the chances are that you have... Um, uh, a, a pretty bad assessment on your hands. So, of course, the chief science officer of Hogan is going to say Hogan is great. Of course he is. But we wanted to ask Stephen why he chose Hogan over, what, the hundred, probably hundred plus other inventories out there. So Hogan is our preferred uh, personality inventory. Um, and the reason that I really like Hogan, because it, first of all, it's in the workplace. It's it's predominantly about um how you are perceived in work and the perceived bit is also important it's not about your identity it's about your reputation so how others are how others view you it's not how you see yourself it's the age-old thing of we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge other people by their actions 
So Hogan is actually able to cut through an awful lot of that. And when you're looking at your report or when you're looking at the report to the person, it's actually how they're likely to be perceived. So you can get a much clearer understanding of, oh, well, maybe that's why everybody's giving out to me about this thing, because I am flaky or I am, I don't feel deadlines because of this. So I find it really interesting. And it's also a great way to be able to show people, A, this is where you might have some unconscious biases. But B, this is how you're likely to approach a problem. This is how your parents are approaching a problem. Can you see a massive gap in this scale? That's why you're clashing and butting heads. Let's look at it from each other's point of view and let's find the middle ground and have those conversations that are not attacking um, and not saying, oh, you're wasting our money. It's like, no, I'm investing in software that we need to grow for the future because things have changed, et cetera, et cetera. I'm thinking, Leo, perhaps we should have done a Hogan before we started our business. It's funny, I'm very like, oh, I've got some great ideas. And then as soon as they're half done, I lose interest. Whereas Leanne's very much like, well, you know, let's just plod on and get this finished. And, you know, and anything that's finished, anything you see that's finished is because Leanne's either finished it or shouted at me to finish it. So what I did like about what Stephen's saying was that it was, Hogan is relatively simple to understand as a non-psychologist, as just a normal person. Of course, there's lots of complicated things going underneath the water. Um, but... Uh, for people like me who like simple things, then Hogan is brilliant. What we really liked about Hogan is, A, a the depth of it. There's 27 scales, 0 to 100. And like you can get such uh, holistic nuance uh, to somebody, and you can really dive into the subscales and get a, a really, really clear picture of how they're likely to be seen. Um, and we found that clients respond really well to that, and they can understand it. They can understand the concepts very easily, where they are in those scales and how they go together. Um, so it, and it's scientifically uh, very robust. There's a there's a lot of uh, history and a lot of uh, experience gone into it. I, I'm not uh, I'm not a data driven person. I'm not a process driven person. I'm much more about the practical side of things. And I just know it works. Like when I use it with people, I can see it works and I can see the benefits of it. So that's why we continue to do it. So when you're choosing a psychometric tool, being aware of the science and research behind it is really important. Not only so that you know that you're measuring the right thing and measuring it consistently, but that you can also get the data you need to make confident decisions within your business. As Stephen said, when it comes to being robust, Hogan is one of the best out there. I think we have the best global norms anyone's ever created uh, about personality and we're continually updating those all of the time. That's a big part of, of the data science mission is continuous improvement of our assessments and, and our norms. And then the third part is, is our research archives, is maintaining all of this knowledge that we have, right? All of the data that we gather, all the research and studies that we do, keeping those organized um, so that you know, we were just always accumulating more knowledge and, and keeping that at our fingertips is a really important part of what I do or what, what my teams do. So when somebody takes a personality assessment, um, if it's a true-false test or if it's a one-to-five sort of rating scale test, you get some kind of a number um, at the end of that test. So like, let's say, you know, you took a four, a very short test, a four-item test on humility, and, and it was a one-to-five rating scale. Um, you have a possibility of scoring anywhere from a four to a 20, right? You could have marked them all a one. You could have marked them all a five. Um, so you have a, any possible range between a four and a 20. But the problem is that number itself doesn't really mean a lot to people. If I, if I got a 12 on that test, what does that mean? I, I, it's kind of hard to say. So what we do is we actually convert those raw scores into norms. Um, and we do that by saying, okay, well, um, just the same way like a, a doctor might with, with height or a doctor might with weight. We say, well, people uh, like you who take the assessments 
Um, what, what's a typical score? What do people typically get? What's the standard deviation? Uh, what does that distribution of scores look like? And so what we actually do is we report back to people where they fall in that distribution. So when I say a norm, that's what we're doing. We're saying this is the distribution of scores. And when we give people a score back, it's a percentile score. So maybe maybe a 12 is at the 50th percentile. So you know about half the people score above me and half the people score below. Um, but that's what that helps give that score a much more interpretive meaning. And, and you can really understand uh, much better what that means if you score in the 95th percentile versus the 5th percentile, for example. Ryan's explained norms really well there. And I think one that you're probably very familiar with is when we talk about IQ. Um, you, you, you probably know that an average IQ will sit somewhere around 100, a score of 100. And you also know if you hear somebody with a high IQ, or if you hear an IQ of like 145, 160, you automatically know that's a really high score because you have the context. And that's what norms do. They give us the, the context of our scores in relation to, to other people. Okay, so family businesses start with an entrepreneur. I don't think there's any other way it can possibly start. And there must be this kind of trend with entrepreneurs because we're all very different, so we must have some common traits. So let's listen to Ryan and hear what the typical personality of an entrepreneur is. So we have data on uh, hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs. Um, gosh, we're probably getting into thousands now of, of entrepreneurs who have taken our assessments at Hogan. And so um, there, there is actually a really clear profile that we see with entrepreneurs. It's just quite amazing. Like every time we collect a new entrepreneur sample, like I can just plot out what that profile is going to look like because they just all, it just always comes back the same. Um, and a few things that we see. One is that they tend to score really high on a scale that we call excitable. And excitable is about sort of volatility, uh, being really feeling emotionally attached to, to lots of things and, and being willing to change and flex and, and, and having a lot of energy towards projects. That's what we see with a lot of entrepreneurs. Makes a lot of sense. They're really flexible about change. What they want to do is go, no, this isn't working. Get rid of it. Stop. Do something else. Change something new. So entrepreneurs are really good at disruption. Part of it's because of Excitable. They're also very high imaginative. They tend to be creative. They tend to think uh, in new ways. They tend to... Um, uh, score pretty high on ambition. Uh, they tend to score pretty high on what we call inquisitive, which is, again is about creativity. So basically what we see with entrepreneurs is they see problems, right? They see a lot of problems. They want to fix those problems, right? And they're really committed to, to, to doing whatever it takes to fix those. And they are happy to break down current systems, to, to blow everything up, to restart, to, to fix that particular problem. And that's what makes them so great at what they do is that they can say, okay, this is bad. Let's get rid of that. Let's change it. They can disrupt whatever's going on. The problem is when you start running a really successful business, right? If you're an entrepreneur, you started this business, it starts to grow. It starts to become successful because you did solve some problem that was really critical that people needed solved. All you're looking for is more problems to solve. And many times, that's not what your business needs. Your business doesn't need more change. What it needs now is stability. It needs someone to sort of steady the ship, right? You've done all the disrupting and you've done all the changing. And now it needs someone who can really fine tune and get it on that long-term progression. And in uh, many cases, entrepreneurs aren't very good at that. What they're very good at is disrupting, is right, making a lot of change. So first of all, thanks, Ryan, for... Us entrepreneurs thinking we're special and you're saying we are the most predictable type of people <laughs> out there. Thank you. But I think it's really, if you are an entrepreneur, you will resonate with that. Imaginative people imagine. So when they think they've imagined comes to life, they imagine some more, which means that we are 
probably really bad for business. We're great for starting them, but if you get us halfway through, we are going to fuck it up badly because we're going to go, uh, like Elon Musk took over Twitter and went, right, get rid of everyone. We're going to do this. We're going to do this now. And it's like, well, this is an established business of 15 years. All right. Hadn't made much money, but still that's a different discussion for a different day. So when we're talking about family businesses, when Leanne and I were first talking about it, in fact, we talked about it with Stephen, I think, mm-hmm. was we talked a lot about sort of Soprano was the first thing that came to mind, wasn't it? Soprano is the, um, if, unless you, if, if you potentially lived on the moon for the last 20 years, then Sopranos is basically about a mafia uh, family. But they're not, they are, some of them are family, but basically described as, as family. It was interesting that we immediately thought, I wonder if like family business and the mafia, are there any similarities? I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about kind of famous family businesses in pop culture, they're the ones that tend to spring to mind. You know, things like The Godfather or Sopranos or, you know, or The Mafia or, you know, even with um, like that TV show Succession. Oh, yeah. I can know it's meant to be based on the Murdochs and meant to be kind of a legit, um, but even then there's some questionable activity happening there. So it, it does make you wonder... Is there some overlap between entrepreneurial organizations and criminal organizations? It's a really impressive data set uh, collected by uh, some of our colleagues uh, in the Netherlands um, who actually uh, were able to, I don't actually know how they did this. They were actually able to sort of um, not necessarily infiltrate, but get but get in with some organized uh, crime organizations um, and get assessments from individuals there who are not currently in jail, right? So typically, or, or in prison, right? So typically when you have, uh, you know, we have other prison samples at Hogan, right? But these are people who are criminals who got caught or who were convicted anyway. Um, these are individuals who are not convicted, who are, who are not, you know, the, the, some of them may be under investigation, some of them may be being monitored, but um, none of them have been convicted of, of a crime at the time when, when they were assessed. So, um, and, and it's, a, it's, as you might imagine, it's a hard sample to get. So it's not a huge sample. I think we've got about 60 or 70 folks in that sample. Um, and the remarkable thing about their profile is just how similar it looks to that entrepreneurial profile. I, I would say sort of key differences here. So a couple of things that, that I think stand out when we look at entrepreneurs and we, we look at criminals um, is, is that they're both right in for destruction. They both are creative. They both can look at avenues for success. They're both looking at ways that, hey, how can I achieve? How can I solve some problem? How can I fix something? Um, the difference is, right, is, is really about laws. It's, it's how strict are the laws. And so in certain countries, uh, and in fact, there, there's a business paper many, many years ago, I think it's a very overlooked paper where um, this business professor essentially theorized that uh, there's some fixed number of entrepreneurs in any population. And how many of them go to prison versus succeed really depends on how strict your laws are, right? If you have really strict laws, you put many of them in prison. If your laws aren't very strict, if you're pretty loose about what, what can happen, then many of them uh, go on to, have, to start uh, these thriving businesses. Um, and, and so that's one of the key differences is, is just sort of how strict the laws are locally. But the other, the other difference that, that we see with with entrepreneurs and organized uh, criminals is, is there t- tends to be um, an empathy component. So we see a little bit more empathy in the entrepreneurs. At some deep level, the entrepreneurs might actually um, you know, worry about harming other people, right? They, 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 really, they, they really care more about that. Whereas uh, the organized criminals have a little less. The other thing that we tend to see, and we don't have great data on this, but it seems to be the case, is that sort of background, right? So I mean, Elon Musk has been highly successful 
entrepreneur, but he didn't start from nothing, right? His parents had uh, a pretty, that uh, provided a pretty strong um, financial uh, base for him to start off with. And he also got a pretty good education, right? In the criminal world, we're, we're often talking about people who don't have that, right? They didn't come from a strong socioeconomic background. They didn't come from a privileged area. Um, they didn't get to go to the best schools or anything like that. And so, but, but they have the same desires that those entrepreneurs do, right? They want to disrupt. They want to change. They see problems. They see ways to fix it. They see ways that they can be involved. Um, and, and they want to gain status. And um, they, they, so they'll come up with a different creative means. If you don't have access to sort of, quote unquote, legal means for achieving status and success, they will resort to illegal ones. We are interrupting this episode for an important announcement. If you've not been listening to Inclusion and Marketing by Sonia Thompson, then you are a fool. What are they missing out on, Lee? Everything related to diversity, belonging, and inclusion. Sonia's podcast is so, it's so good. It covers everything you need to know about building an inclusive brand, including customer experience, inclusive leadership, cultural intelligence, building diverse teams, inclusive language, imagery, the list goes on. Basically, if you're doing any kind of marketing right now and you've not listened to Sonia's show, then you're probably not being as inclusive as you should be. Not only is it great content, but Sonia's very happy to tackle the controversial stuff like the recent Nike deal with Caitlin Clark. A really, really interesting episode. Go and listen to that and more. Inclusion and marketing. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I love this. I love the fact that criminals who are not caught are just very good entrepreneurs. They see a problem, but they're also vitally and highly and ultra aware of the constraints that they've got when producing this solution to this problem. Uh, like, what was that story about the gold heist? You told me the other day that every every ring or something being sold. So basically, 1980s UK, six men broke into the Brinks Mat Security Depot uh, near London Heathrow Airport. And when, I think they thought they were stealing cash, but accidentally stumbled on like gold, like gold blocks that are worth at the time like 25, 26 million, which today is what, three, four times the, the value. Mm. Um, four of those six people were never caught. And it's estimated because of the vast amount of, of gold that they found and how they kind of got rid of it. And fenced it, I fenced think is what it, they is say that what it's called? On fenced TV. it. Um, but yeah, that if you have a piece of jewellery, gold jewellery in the UK um, that you bought after 1984, chances are there is a little bit of it that you could originate back to this, this stolen gold supply. I love it. I love it. So giving the population what they want without being too concerned about the constraints of the current regulations in place. Now, call me crazy, Al, <laughs> but this reminds me of a young entrepreneur who established his first <laughs> business by selling beer outside of regular UK licensing hours. Yeah, that was me. That was me. And it was it was ostensibly legal, but you notice that I don't use the word 100% legal. So <laughs> if you don't want to hear how I broke the law and how the law won, um, then go back to uh, the episode in the end of December where you've got my story and the Anne story um, and we tell you all about it. So growing up in rural Lancashire, it's kind of weird because when I think of family businesses, I think of farm shops, I think of farms, I think of shops. That, <laughs> farms, shops, and farm shops. Those <laughs> farms and shops and farms and shops and farms and shops. <laughs> so I kind of think of, um, of just family businesses. Whereas actually there are some huge family businesses like Guinness is started up by Arthur, Arthur Guinness. And it's, um, 
And he starts off with his idea that, that people would have, he's building a business for his children, his grandchildren. Now, as a, oh, there's a butterfly kind of entrepreneur, I kind of find anything longer than a, a 10-month plan fascinating. I was wondering whether the Irish big family, Catholic family, lent itself more to family businesses than other countries. So I asked Stephen, is there anything to do with, like, culture, country in family businesses? So, funny enough, the term family business really only came into existence in the last 75 to 100 years with really the industrial revolution and people really forming these huge businesses that have multiple offices and headquarters. Because before that, all businesses are family businesses. Like if you were setting up a, a store or a, a service or a farm or anything else, who who are you going to, you're going to pay somebody down the town uh, a couple of bags of flour to work? Or are you going to, hey, kids, we've had 16 of you start working. Um, so family business as, a, as, a, as an outlier almost really only happened in the last two generations. So, and people started to, to use the term family business, especially in America, like the mom and pop, it was originally the mom and pop thing was kind of, oh, they're not really professional, they're not really serious. But then actually family business started leaning into this because they're values based and they, they have a longer view of the client and everything else. So there are people who prefer to work with family businesses, but there are some people who prefer to work with, um, with corporates. But you mentioned Japan and Japan to me is fascinating. So the oldest business in the world is a small hotel in Tokyo. And I'm dying to get out to see them because it is, it's, I think it's a hundred generations old or something outrageous like that. But the thing in Japan, and you can look this up, this is true. 80% of um, adoptions in Japan to this day are people who are 30 years and older. It is adoption is huge in Japan but not of kids. It's people who are running family businesses who aren't so sure that their junior has what it takes. So they find an executive, they find somebody that they think can carry on the business. They adopt them legally at 30 years of age. They take the name, they do everything else, and it becomes a family business, but it's a family business by adoption, not necessarily because your bloodline is actually flowing through the industry or the business for, for generations, which is fascinating to me. That is really interesting, taking the concept of family businesses to an entirely different level. As we said, Al and I were very small family businesses, just the two of us. And one of the dynamics we've had to work really hard on, and we still do if I'm being honest, is separating work life and family life. It's really tough. I mean, if you think about going out for a drink with your mate from work and not talking about work... Of course you do. You just do. That's the way it is. So here's Stephen's thoughts on one of the most challenging dynamics of working with family. So if you've got family business owners, a family business who they talk about the business all the time, they have dinner and every dinner devolves into a board meeting or a, a conversation about the business, which you don't get in other families because you're not working together as well. Um, I think there's a lot of extra baggage that happens because there is not just the professional dynamic, there's also the mother-father-child uh, dynamic and where the authority lies. And you might, in a company, you might feel, actually, I'm the marketing director. I've done, I've, I've earned my chops. I know what I'm doing. I can have a professional conversation with the CEO and say, look, the direction that we're going in is wrong. We need to be on TikTok. We need to be doing all this other stuff where, where the kids are. And you can have a professional conversation. There are kind of rules of engagement around how those meetings go 
even in a even in a, um, a casual working environment. Whereas with the parents, sometimes there can be a now, son, don't tell me what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm in my living room. You're in my house. And there can be that element of tension. Um, and it's actually one of the things that I tell people to do when you're having meetings like this. Don't don't have them in the house. Don't have them in the office. Go out for dinner. Go somewhere else. Go to a rugby match. Go to do something else that is not either of your territories, for want of a better expression. This is gold. <clears throat> We've only just recently learned this and we now go out for coffee if we want to talk about anything about business. Because if you have an argument in your home, like um, I'd love to say that, that Oblong HQ is this massive complex like the Apple Park, but really it's just a three, a two-bedroom apartment where one room is our office. So if we're sitting at the dinner table and we're eating dinner and I say, I want to do this kind of thing, and Leanne goes, no, I don't, because we're in the context of our home, it feels like a personal disagreement. I don't want to say the word argument, a personal disagreement, which in itself is personal. Whereas you go outside, you go somewhere else, you have a cup of coffee, you sit down, I've got these ideas and we've done it and we've fallen out when we're out. But then almost like when we come back in, it's like, okay, that was a thing. We didn't agree. That was done. So we'll dive into the five P's that Stephen comes up with in a second. But the first one stands for purpose. And it's really interesting because it contextualizes all of your discussions. The, it, everything in succession planning, everything always comes back to the first P, which is the purpose. What are we here to do? I mean, are we here just to, to get into this nitty gritty or are we taking a much longer view? And family businesses tend to take a longer view because there is that sense of succession. Um, actually, uh, Arthur Guinness from uh, Guinness, you know, you're familiar with the, one of these, the small Irish brand. Um, he had one of his tenants was think in terms of generations yet to come. So he wasn't even thinking in quarters or years or 10-year targets. He was thinking about great-grandkids that haven't even been, like the grandkids aren't even here yet. So his thinking was so grand that he was thinking much more long-term. And anecdotally, it was like he didn't get as flustered with these things. He could see them as being petty or whatever. With family, look, I mean, I have a, I use a phrase a lot, which is blood is thicker than water, but it sure boils faster. So Brothers and sisters working together, for example, oh, they can get under your skin much quicker than any other teammate. But one of the things that I've found is that you can have the blowout uh, or have a, an argument and people can be shocked about, oh, my God, things this is they're, they're having a big blowout. But then two minutes later, they're sitting down in a board meeting or a meeting and it's the air is cleared. They've had that quick um, bash, but they have this sense of, OK, right, we need to get on with this now and we, we'll, we'll sort this out later. Um, so I think that there is a there's a sense that when you're about to blow up, if you're remembering, look, we're not just in this for the quarter, we're in this for the long term, stuff, petty stuff starts to, to get dissolved away. And I think that is the interesting dynamic about working with family. On one hand, you're more likely to get dragged into a, a heated debate, shall we say, when you're very familiar with somebody. But equally, you're probably more likely to go, okay, let's park this, let's move on, we have something else to focus on now. It is an interesting dynamic. But of course, there are other ways to join a family business, and that's to marry into it. We asked Stephen about the differences he's observed with his friend and client, Evan, who married into a family business. So, yeah, so I, he's, a, he's a friend of mine for many years. We were we were very friendly competitors when I was in the language travel business. Um, so he was very gracious to, to share his story. Um, it probably did. It, 
it had the same he had the same issues in terms of there needed to be a communication what was the plan what was the the succession plan for this what were they going to be doing where were they aligning what were their expectations what was his expectations but i think what he he probably and he didn't say this in the podcast he didn't say it to me either but i would imagine when you have your own family you can be a little bit more kind of ah for, just tell me what you want to do you can kind of lose the cool a little bit not so much with the in-laws, I suspect, uh, and feeling of going, maybe I can't have a go or I have to be a little bit more patient and I have to swallow that a little bit more. Um, but, I mean, it was a very easy transition in the end. Like there was, and he, he talked about it in the podcast that once they were able to kind of understand the expectations for the other people, they actually were able to accelerate a couple of those things and both sides got what they wanted. Uh, Evan was able to have the freedom to do what he wanted in the school to to make the changes and to to grow the business, um, and the the in laws were able to walk away feeling okay, it's in safe hands. Whatever we built in, we've done, and it's not our kids, but it's it's still in the family. Um, so I suspect it was a little bit more polite, perhaps, than a, a traditional family business when you have a couple of moments of tension, um, but. As far as I know, they're they're still um, they get on still very well. When we're talking about the the current generation within family businesses, or what are typically the parents within businesses, they're also the leaders, and having the right leadership in place, as you know, is critical to the success of all businesses. In fact, there was some research done by PwC recently, and they found that first generation businesses forty two percent had double digit sales growth. But by the fifth generation, only 22% did, and 48% are only in single digits. So reasons for this slow growth can be things like risk aversion, market changes, and succession problems. But another key issue can be the misalignment of leadership around the company's purpose, values, mission, vision, and brand. So it seems safe to say that picking the right successor to lead a family business can be challenging and perhaps a little bit more emotionally charged than in your regular business. But before we dive into that, let's remind ourselves of the importance of leadership. Here's Ryan. The most obvious place uh, that personality can help is with leadership. So there's a lot of data um, over the last several decades on leadership and and about having effective leadership and having the right leadership in place. Uh, Basically, when the right leader is in place, organizations thrive. The individuals who work in those organizations thrive. The individuals who live in those communities thrive. Um, and when the wrong leaders are in place, uh, really, really bad things happen. Um, the, you know, organizations fail. The individuals suffer. Um, I, I think there's, there's really clear ones if we look. And this is true whether we're talking about corporate organizations, right? You can look at organizations like Enron and say, wow, that's not a great place to be. Or an organization like Apple and where... Um, it's a really thriving organization. Getting the right leaders in place is really essential. And personality assessments, that's one of the big things that we, we do at Hogan is use personality assessments to help organizations find their future leaders, to find those right leaders to put in place. In the corporate world, we know that the CEO uh, is responsible for somewhere between 20 to 35% of um, a public uh, company stock price. Um, and so, I mean, and what's that all about? That's all about uh, getting that right CEO. So again, we've talked about in terms of content, in terms of knowledge, in terms of experience, but that's relatively easy to evaluate. The much more challenging thing to evaluate is their personality and, and are, are they going to make really, really bad decisions? Like, 
Uh, I, I give it one example that, that's clear is, is with Jack Welch, uh, who pretty much ruined GE um, through, I mean, he was named like Times or uh, I think it was Time Magazine Man of the Century or Leader of the Century or something like that. And, 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 but unbeknownst to, to uh, people on the outside, he was completely ruining GE, which was this you know, top five uh, company globally. And was just completely ruined, um, mostly by his personality, right? And it's actually quite interesting. One of the things that he said was that leadership is all about charisma. I mean, that's what he said, right? Leadership is all about charisma. It's all about charm. It's all about convincing people, persuading people. Um, we don't think that that's what leadership is about. We think the leadership is about building a team that's going to be really effective and productive, right? And so... Um, I think it just really underscores the point that getting those right leaders in place is, is really critical and personality assessments is, in my view, the best way to do that. Family businesses, as we've said, start with entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs, sorry, Al, have a very specific personality profile. And that might not always go very well with a growing business. So as a business owner that's growing your business, whether it be a family business or otherwise, looking at leadership expertise and approach both now and what you'll need in the future is going to be a vital step in ensuring its survival. Here's Ryan's advice. So what we find with many entrepreneurs is that it's really, really valuable to have a, an exit plan, um, is to do what you're good at, is to say, okay, I'm really good at disrupting. And once we've done the disrupting, I don't need to disrupt any further because that's what they really are. That's really what they want to do. Uh, an alternative is to have a number two who, who works for you, who can sort of pull the reins in on some of the disruption. You can say, hey, uh, we, we have a plan. Remember, this is a good plan. We've agreed to the plan. We need to stick to this plan for now. We don't need to disrupt. Because the reality is that while many people get inspired, right? There's a lot of people who go, wow, that's right. We need this change. This is something we need to do. Most people, there's a, a, about 90% of people uh, can't handle constant change. Entrepreneurs love constant change. They love, we're going to do something different every day. Most people can't handle that. Most people want some modicum of predictability. They, they want to know, okay, I know what's going to happen today when I go into work. I know what I'm expected to do. Um, and and uh, when entrepreneurs are in charge for too long, th that you lose that expectation, you lose that sense of security, you lose that sense of predictability and order and structure in your life. And those people just quit. They get burned out. So that, that's one of the real risks with entrepreneurs staying into the role too long is that they'll burn their, their really talented employees out. Yeah, and I think that something that Ryan says there is that entrepreneurs, entrepreneur, if that's a verb, well, it is now. But I think the the fact is that that's what they do. But what happens if you have, you know, you have a you have a child who is not an entrepreneur? They're more of a CMO. They're more of a chief operating officer. They're more of an artist. You know, it's kind of tough in that situation. So we're going to come back to family dynamic in a second. But we have to be realistic. The fact that. The entrepreneurs who started businesses 40, 50 years ago are aging and they're probably in the baby boomer generation. What happens now? I think you're right. That is a really interesting dynamic of a family businesses and, and having that, you know, current generation CEO or MD that is aging. We heard from Ryan before that personality is fairly stable, but it can change under particular circumstances and aging is one of them. We do know that as people get older, their personalities change in, in more predictable ways. So as we get older, we tend to become more conscientious. We tend to be more rule following. Uh, we sort of um, learn the rules of society and 
and find out that that's actually pretty rewarding to follow those, we tend to become more agreeable. We try to get along better with people, particularly as we move into the workplace. We realize that, oh, the way to, to succeed at work is to sort of get along a little better. So we become much more agreeable. Uh, we tend to be, get a little more extroverted as we get older. We also uh, tend to become less neurotic, which is, um, or another way of putting that is become um, less emotional, we become more emotionally stable as, as we get older as well. So there are these sort of common trends that everybody follows. I think a big one there is is what Ryan said about becoming you know, more risk averse and risk being risk averse and being an entrepreneur aren't typically things that go hand in hand. Stephen also identified the older personality as a factor and what it means for a family business. Um, there's a there's a fra- another phrase that I use and I use it a lot when in keynotes and workshops, which is what got you here is not going to get them there. And when you have a current generation that is risk averse and they built it up, the blood, sweat and tears, and they're looking at the next generation, especially an unconscious bias of actually we had to sacrifice so much for you to be in this position. You never had to sacrifice that and then you're taking it for granted. There is a real unconscious bias of you, your, your change could wreck this because we know what we've been doing for the last 30 years is keeping us here. But actually, if you don't change, you're going to get stomped by the market. So the next generation sees the world. They've grown up in the world that they're going to be living in. They know the changes that the company needs because they're saying this is outdated or that's outdated. So there is a, a big tension pull between those two areas. Uh, and that's somewhere where we can have really in-depth conversations and having those personality reports like Hogan uh, makes it so much easier to, to have those conversations. There's a, a researcher um, out, in, out in, in Hawaii who was uh, studying personality and the structure of personality. So which traits go with which traits? And he was doing this in little children. And um, he, uh, he, he was having teachers, right? The, the kids' personality, third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders, sixth graders um, at, at the university school in, in, in Honolulu, Hawaii. And um, he had collected thousands of, of, of these teacher ratings and done some factor analysis to try to sort of understand what the structure of these traits are. And then uh, he just said, okay, well, I'm done with that study and uh, eventually retired. Uh, and uh, that data set sat around for about 30 or 40 years when uh, another researcher at the University of Oregon named Lou Goldberg said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could go find those people and see how they're doing today? And that's actually what they did. They got a grant. Um, they went and found these people uh, to, to find out sort of, you know, what are they, so 30 or 40 years later, right? So when you're in third, fourth, fifth grade, we have teachers' ratings of your personality. And then they actually brought thousands of people back to the Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Honolulu, Hawaii. And they did all kinds of things, they did medical tests, they did interviews, they, they had them take more personality assessments, more modern personality assessments. Um, but one of the things that they had was video recorded interviews of their sort of life history. And when I met with Lou Goldberg and we said, hey, wouldn't it be really cool if we could code those for behavior? So one of my colleagues and I had been spending a lot of time coding behavior from actual live interviews. And he gave us hundreds of these uh, videos. We went back to our lab in Southern California, gave these videos to our trained research assistants who, who then coded how these people behaved in videos. So to, 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 again, sort of put this all these pieces together, we have what your teacher said about you in third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And then we have how you behaved 30 to 40 years later in a video interview, right? So we, we measured things like, you know, how frequently do you talk? 
uh, how, how sort of uh, creative do you sound? Um, we measure things like how anxious and nervous do you feel in the interview, right? We were able to predict how you behaved in that interview based on what your teacher said about you in the third, fourth, fifth, or sixth grade, which I think is pretty amazing, right? So I think that really speaks to when we're talking about stability of personality, right? So your reputation when you were little predicts how you behave when you're older. We can predict using using personality metrics, using these behavioral this behavioral coding, how somebody will act in 30 years time based on how they are as a child. So this is fascinating. So potentially parents at a very young age will have instinctively a good idea of whether their kids are going to be good enough to take over. Not even good enough, because that's a really judgmental thing to say. Um, Are going to be suitable to take over the reins of perhaps the position they're taking over. Now, what happens if you look at them and go, no, that's not going to work. Do we straight up tell them they're not getting involved? We asked Stephen. I just did a video last week of how do you tell a child that they're not getting the business? Because there there are times when you're looking at it going, look, you don't have what it takes. You don't have the personality. You don't have the hunger, the drive or whatever. And there's all kinds of things that you can do. I mean, the, for me, when it comes to the next gen, the current generation of family business, there are four S's of what you can do with a family business. The first one is stop. So if the current generation tragically dies or just retires and there's nobody to take over or whatever, the business just stops. It's just current generation decides, well, I'm not going into that office anymore. Shutters down, boom, that's it. Stopped. That is my third least favorite. The second one is sell. So um, the sell, you can decide, okay, my kids don't want it or I don't want to give it to them. I'm just going to sell the business take get the maximum I can for the amount of hard work I put into it. I leave them, I'll give it to them in an inheritance or whatever, and I'm going to go off and sell around the world on a yacht. Whatever it is you want to do. If that's what you want to do, brilliant. There's plenty of um, specialized services companies that can help you to maximize that, tax, law, everything else. That is my second favorite because it's a cleaner way of making sure that everybody's happy. The third S is survive. That is my least favorite. Because survive is when they put somebody in place that is really just a caretaker, somebody to just keep things ticking along, don't rock the boat. The problem with that is the market is going to change, your competitors are going to start catching up. And for me, survive is just a very long, prolonged, painful stop that you have no control over. You're just kind of bouncing along. So it's my least favorite option. My favorite option is scale, the final S, which is putting the right people in the right place to scale through the generations to actually make a difference in the generations. So an example that I had with a client of mine, um, uh, who's actually a friend of mine as well, um, he is the kind of the typical CEO out there driving the business, meeting people, networking, negotiating, uh, bringing in stuff for the business. There are about three, three and a half million uh, in revenue. His son is starting to make moves to say, yeah, I'd like to join this. I, I, I like this, but I'm, he's not a CEO. He's not an out there. He's not a gregarious type of guy that's going to be out there pounding the pavement, coming up with ideas and being creative. Great guy and very process oriented, very detail oriented. So it's going to be much better in a COO type role. So um, he's, he's a great operator. Uh, or he will be a great operator. He has the personality, he has the attributes to do it. So what we're looking at doing, it's not going to be for a couple of years, but when the succession plan comes in, we're going to be looking for 
a hired gun, an external CEO, and we're going to say, okay, here's the plan. Uh, you've got 10 years as the CEO. We're going to pay you a ton of money. You're going to get bonuses here, there, and everywhere. You're going to take the business from three to 12 million over the 10-year period. You're going to really drive this business on. My son is going to work alongside with you as the COO, learning everything about the business. Then in 12 years' time or 10 years' time, whatever, when you've got us to that 12 million, um, we're going to give you a massive golden hand, or golden parachute. Off you go. You can now go and be a gun for hire for someone else and join a bigger company. And that's their progression plan. That's their personality, their ambition, driving and growing. Then the son will step in as the CEO. And once the business is at that size, then it's about maintaining and managing and, and being able to, to keep that on the, the straight and narrow. The example that I really use with this is Apple. Uh, Steve Jobs, the quintessential kind of highly creative CEO, really only looked at new products and marketing, and that's it. Everything else was handled by Tim Cook. Uh, Apple, hugely creative, growing at a huge pace, really uh, outperforming the market in terms of products, in terms of design, in terms of everything else. Then Steve passes away, Tim Cook becomes the CEO. They haven't really invented anything new, but they've never been more profitable because they're at the size that CEO, Tim Cook is very process driven, make sure that everything is done properly, everything is done correctly. And there's not this wild kind of let's throw some money into R&D on this. So it's that kind of an idea. There are lots of different ways that you can have succession depending on who your pick is. So what's the purpose of the business? And then who's the pick? Who's the right person? Um, and who's the right person for now? And in that example, they're not the right person to lead us for the next 10 years to get us to where we're going. But once we get there, they're absolutely the right person to lead us. I think it's important to remember that, yes, whilst we can make some confident predictions about how people will behave based on how they are as children, equally, the leader we need in our family business is going to be entirely dependent on what stage of growth our business is in. So as a parent, can you really make a confident decision looking at your five-year-old if they've got what it takes to run your business? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, I would I would always advise people not to just take on the next generation because of the next generation, like to just go, oh, well, they're the fruit of my loins, so they're obviously as amazing as I am, or they have the same drive. I mean, that that's just asking for, for trouble. Um, so one of the things in the prepare section of the, the five Ps of successful succession um, it's all about the internal and external development. So if you take, if somebody's joining the family business, they should really join as low as they possibly can to earn, to work their way up. Um, it, and I've seen it in the past. And we, I mean, we've all seen it. This is the, this is the stereotype that enrages me about family businesses. When somebody says, Oh, well, she's the marketing director because she has an Instagram account. She knows nothing about marketing. It's just, she has an Instagram account. So that's the view. That's the future of the business or whatever. So they haven't earned the position. Um, they're just there because they're family. So they haven't actually swept the floors. They haven't polished the, the doorknobs. They haven't done the teas and coffees or gone on the, the crazy flights to go meet a client somewhere else. Um, so I would always say that you need to spend time both on internal and external development. Come in as low as you possibly can and or go somewhere else and get trained in a similar industry or a similar position. So if you want to be a, manage, a marketing director for uh, a three to five million euro family business, you should really go and be a marketing director for another similar size business that is not your family and actually work your way up and then come across at that level. If you're not coming across at the same level, you should start as low as possible and work your way up. So you can, you can start from 
the age of like single digits if they have if you see something in them i would be really against the idea of trying to groom somebody that they view that this is their only option or that they they're they have to join the family business um but having those conversations letting them go come back go to somewhere else come back earn their chops if they are 16 17 and they don't know what it's like to work somewhere else and get fired and have somebody scream at them for not doing their job they should probably go do that um so as they know what it's like they're not just coming in going no mommy and daddy i'm going to be late or whatever and uh, that can be problematic um but really the training and the coaching it can be for any age it can be at any age and that training and coaching is not just for them to take over the business also as a parent you want the best for your your kids you want to actually instill as much as you can into them whether that's taking over the family business or going somewhere else so learning the the life lessons giving them the rope to to do some stuff really growing up in the family business you should be doing the same things you should be starting at the same levels as somebody else who comes into the business now you are going to have if you're so inclined to take over the family business you are going to have a different trajectory even though you start at the same time at the same level as someone else and you are probably going to be getting a lot more coaching or um, not not structured coaching but you're going to get mentoring and coaching whether you like it or not so you're going to be able to develop at a better pace that other people maybe aren't um but while you're doing all that going to college working for someone else in the business and working that can be 20 years it can be for as long as the current generation really wants to work in the business and wants to work with the next generation but once the decision has been made that junior is taking over that 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 process is now going to be in train that we've said right we want out you want to take over that process should only be five years max ideally three um because it's not like you're walking away you've still got you've still got the opportunity to mentor and coach that person behind closed doors um but anything longer than that and it starts to drag on for the team as well like uh, who am i going to who am I, who's making the decision um so that's where i say the five years is the maximum but before that, you could be working together for 15, 20 years, um, slowly learning and building and, and sharing responsibility. We've covered the personalities within family businesses. We've covered some of the common pitfalls that we can fall into. We're going to round up this episode of some practical tips from Stephen on what successful succession looks like. And while this is transferable to other types of businesses, there is a personal element that comes with family businesses, particularly in terms of balancing work and family life. So first, Stephen shares his experience of when he was ready to leave the family business, but instead decided to take action. If I set the scene, it was a very grey, wet, cold Friday afternoon in Dublin, which could have been at any time of the year. Could have been in the summer, could have been in the winter, but it, was, it happened to be in the winter. Um, but it was, I remember it, like it, was, it was almost um, caricaturish how bad the weather was and how bad I felt. It was this cliche of a movie. Uh, but I came home and I remember I'd been arguing with my folks for weeks about different courses we should be running in the school. And then we had an English language school or the technology or the marketing or the everything else. And we were just butting heads all the time. And I remember coming home. My wife was about eight months pregnant with our second child. Um, my youngest daughter, my eldest daughter was playing in the, in the kitchen. And I slumped down at the kitchen table. And I said out loud for the first time, stuff that had been going on in my head. And I said out loud, I'm going to have to leave the family business because if I don't, 
my parents will never see their grandkids because we will not be able to be in the same room. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear in your podcast, but that was the, I had to just vent that. And the second I said it, every cell in my body viscerally reacted to, no, that's not, that's not the plan. That's not what we want to do. So once I had kind of cathected a little bit and given out, I knew really that's the last thing I wanted to do. So I can't be the first person to have a problem in a family business. I mean, family businesses have existed since the dawn of time. There have to be uh, examples and solutions and ways of doing this. Um, and so I set about trying to find those and put those together, put them into place. Um, and then fast forward 12 years, um, I bought both businesses from my folks, sold one of them. Um, and we've now moved. So the other office, the, the company, the main business that I'm running now was based in the family home. So we moved that out into town. So now we sold our house, my wife and I and my kids, we sold our house, renovated my parents, my family home. And we now all live in the same house. And that kitchen table that I slumped at, we had uh, Christmas dinner and New Year's dinner at that table 12 years later, all living and still working together. What a story. <laughs> the fact that they, he's still living um, living with his parents, although not working anymore, but still living with his parents. I, th- I, I stand and applaud at that anyway. So Stephen says there are five Ps to succession. The five Ps are purpose, pick, prepare, promote and patience. Here's Stephen to bring this to life. What's the purpose of the organ? What's the purpose of the division? What's the purpose of that is marketing to, to, and it's clearly defined. Where are we going for the next five years? Who's the right person? Who's the pick that needs to bring us there? Is it a creative? Is it a process? Is it a whatever? Then the promote, so, uh, the, sorry, the prepare. Have they done it before? Like that prepare might be a bit shorter if you're in a corporate environment um, or it could be still the, a good few, five years if it's your business and you're selling to a, or you're giving it to a protege. Um, but in a, in a, a, a corporate business, you have you got the qualifications? Have you got the experience? Okay, I'm going to coach you. I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to teach you about these clients. I'm going to teach you about this way of doing things or this these things that we've learned. And then it's the promote. Promote is two meanings. One is to actually give them the job, obviously, to, to let them step up. But the second promote is to be their cheerleader to actually be publicly saying, yep, no, that's, it's, it's next gen's decision now, because it, it happens a lot in family businesses. Um, when you step back, especially if there's kind of new ways of doing things, sometimes employees that have been with the company for a long time will go to, let's say, consult with the previous generation. Act, oh, yeah, I'm not so sure. Is this the way we should be doing? It's not the way we did it before. Your job as the now previous generation or current generation is to be, no. It's Junior's decision. Absolutely, it's the right thing to do. You got to go talk to them. I'm not answering that. You can have all the conversations you want behind closed doors and you can disagree vehemently with what they're doing and try to counsel them. But publicly, you have to be their biggest supporter. That's the the second meaning of the promote. Uh, And then the fifth one is patience um, because at some point it's going to hit the fan and uh, everybody's learning. So whether you're in a corporate or whether you're in a, a family business or a smaller business, the five steps are the same. Okay, so it's been another chunky episode. We have covered all kinds of things in this. Um, A couple of things you need to know. If you are anything we've linked to or we've discussed, we will link to in the show notes. So just go to truthliesandwork.com and you'll see that the show notes will be the last up there under episodes. So you're going to learn more about Ryan, where you can find him, where you can find his website and his podcast, the Science of Personality podcast. 
I just noticed whilst I was looking at the video before, he's got a short SM7B, which is what I've got. It's a microphone. So clearly he knows what he's talking about. And if you want to learn more about Stephen, he's at SuccessfulSuccession.com. Again, links in the show notes to his LinkedIn, his website. He also has a podcast, unsurprisingly, called Killer Family Business Podcast. There are some great guests on there. In fact, one of his guests we've stolen for an upcoming episode. We have, and I particularly enjoyed, I think it was actually the first episode when he talks to his parents and, and gains their perspective on on building a killer family business without killing your family, as Stephen calls it. Thank you so much to Ryan and Stephen for your incredible contributions today. We have learned so much, lots to think about, lots to digest. Loved it. Leanne, I think we've deserved a glass of wine. Shall we go and enjoy one? We have... Have a have a good week and we will we will see you on the other side. See you next week.